everyone. This is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Well, hey guys, welcome back. Hey, sellers. You know, I've been looking at these trees outside my window. I don't trust those trees out there. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because they seem sort of shady. You know, you just can't trust those stairs either. Oh, really? Why? Because they're always up to something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, high five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> virtual five. So this week we needed a little bit more time to research the cases that we're going to be covering in our next episode. So this week's going to be a little bit different. Um, We're going to have more of a discussion episode to kind of give us that little bit of a buffer we need to get thorough research done. So we're going to update you guys on some of the cases we've previously discussed and then maybe talk about some current news that are going on in those counties. Although we wish we had more details to share, unfortunately, we've hit some roadblocks. But don't worry, we're not giving up. We've been working hard to reach out to investigating agencies, but unfortunately, most of those attempts have been unsuccessful. However, we couldn't come this far without your help. Thank you for sending in your tips and the information via Facebook or email. It helps us put together more accurate episodes and gives us a much better idea of what to look for. We know rumors can run wild in communities when it comes to these cases. Some are just plain untrue, while others might have some truth to them. This can sometimes make it difficult to separate fact from fiction, but that's where you come in. Your input helps us determine which rumors are more prevalent than others. So keep those tips coming and let's work together to solve these cases. Just to touch a little bit on Brittany Wood's case, um, we have emailed the investigator currently assigned to Brittany's case, but we still, as we mentioned, haven't gotten a response. Nope. Yeah. Frustrating. But um, we'll keep at it. We did want to make a note of a current case with maybe an unknown connection to Brittany. Um, I don't know if any of you out there have heard. 15-year-old Maggie Riggs has been missing from the Theodore area since February. There were a few media articles published shortly after her disappearance, but there's really been no update or coverage since then. And those media articles were just the police um, yeah, release from Mobile Police exactly. Department. Yeah, um, and just kind of shared just a couple of times it looked like, and then nothing. Yeah. Um, so Tiffany Bailey, one of Brittany's close friends, who was featured in 
Monster in the Shadows. Maggie is Tiffany's stepdaughter. Hmm. Her name, full name, 15-year-old Magdalena Riggs, who goes by Maggie, was last seen around 6 a.m. on February 27th of this year at the Spanish Trail Apartments, located at 6232 Spanish Trail, Theater, Alabama. She was last seen wearing black jogger sweatpants with a white stripe down each side and a black hoodie with the words currency collector on it in silver letters on the back. Maggie is approximately five foot seven, 140 pounds, with brown eyes, and at the time of her disappearance, had burgundy brown hair. She has not been entered into the Alien or NamUs um, databases, as far as we can tell yet. Um, but a missing person report has been filed with Mobile Police Department. At least based on the fire. Yeah, of course. You know, it looks like it. Yeah. Um, Since there's a detective. Right, exactly. So if you have any information, uh, please contact Detective George Busby at Mobile Police Department, 251-208-1700. We will also provide a link in the episode details to their website where you can find the information on how to submit an anonymous tip. It is so frustrating to me that she hasn't been entered into NamUs or Leah. And I know probably what they're going to say is that she's been entered into NCIC. Isn't that it? I believe so, yeah. The National Crime. I can't even remember what it stands for. But the public can't see that. Right. You know, and it just, that's frustrating when that's what's used as the reason for them not being in Leah or NamUs. Because... The point is to get the information out there publicly. And I know not everybody checks Aaliyah or NamUs, um, but to me, I think this is so frustrating because regardless of how distant the connection is to Brittany Wood, this should be something that should be kind of elevated, I feel like, on the alert because we know how Brittany's turned out so far. Right. She's not been found. So this seems like something that would be at the forefront of their minds. Like, oh my gosh, even if, you know, this isn't her family or whatever, you know, there's still that connection there that should trigger that, okay, last time, if we didn't work fast enough to find her, you know, let's not make that mistake here. And I'm not saying the detective's not looking at it. He might be. I don't know. But there's, but there's just not a lot of information. Exactly. Yeah. There hasn't been anything, you know, that we could find. Um, NCIC, by the way, means National Crime Information Center. And yeah, but as far as we know, we have no idea if she's been entered there or not. Yeah. And uh, it's just so frustrating. I would love to see the one of the local media stations picked this up and run it on the news a couple of times at least to circulate it around out there. I know there's missing people everywhere, but especially with kids, I mean, anybody really, it's you want to keep them out there. You want people to be looking mm-hmm. for them and putting it on the news where people are paying attention is a good way to get some more eyes on it. Right. As far as Rakeem Samuels and Nanette Thomas's cases go, um, you know, Montgomery actually emailed us back and said they don't release information to the public on pending investigations. So we don't really have any updates there, although we do wish we had something. 
Um, but as an aside, we received a message this week from somebody who said that Rakeem's mother, Erica, had referred them over to our page um, and asked if we could help them get some information out about a missing man named Taquan Cortez Fantroy. Taquan is 27 years old and was last seen on March 29, 2023, in the Peterman Burnt Corn area of Conecuh County. He was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, black ripped jeans, and black and blue Jordans. According to the Conecuh County Sheriff's Office Facebook page, Taquan is believed to be on foot as his vehicle was found abandoned, but they don't state where it was found, and his direction of travel is unknown. From what we can tell, Taquan has not been active on his social media accounts since a few days before his disappearance. If you have any information, if you've seen Taekwon, if you've talked to Taekwon, if you've heard anybody talking about him, please contact Conecuh County Sheriff's Office at 251-578-5911. Weren't we told that he had an iPhone also? He, he does have an iPhone, or at least that's my understanding, is that he has an iPhone. And I hope that investigators have tried to track that. Um, that's a question that we get a lot is, is there any way for family members to actually track cell phone data? And that would be something useful to have, especially when you're looking at adult cases, because a lot of places won't take a missing person report on adults unless there's something to give them concern or something to prove that they didn't just make the decision. Yeah, because they think that there's nothing... That says that they can't just go and decide to start a new life or get away from their family or, you know, whatever. I just. uh. Yeah, that's what, you know, they say a lot of times is they have the right to decide to leave if they want to. But then you have family members who know that this is not normal and whether they have the right or not, it's still concerning. Yeah, if it's out of their normal. Yeah. And I didn't really know this until actually earlier today, um, that cell phone providers actually used to sell customer location data, the real-time location data. But the FCC actually proposed some major fines, like $200 million fines, against several providers, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, um, I think there was one more, for mishandling users' private information and selling that to third-party people. Um, That's interesting. I didn't know that either. Yeah. And so the crazy thing about that, though, is that even at the end of 2022, that fine was still pending. There'd been no official decision made on whether they were actually going to do that, like fine them for that. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. The FCC claimed that they had ensured providers were no longer monetizing from the location data, but that there's now a concern about how private information is stored and what their security practices are for releasing it. You know, like, um, you know, like Google Sensor Vault that started, I think, back in 2010, basically storing users' location data in perpetuity, from what I can tell, based on GPS, cell phone pings, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, anything essentially that can pick up a signal they got location data from, and then they store that. It's very hard to get that data. Um, I think you can, you have to have a warrant to get it. And then they send back anonymized user information from the specific time period and location you're requesting. And then you have to identify a pattern 
in there that matches what you're looking for and go back to Google to actually get that user information. What the FCC said was that cell phone providers are in a unique situation to know a lot about a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you put a lot of a lot of information into your cell phone, whether you realize it or not, through your web browser, if you shop online. Um, so the FCC is inquiring into how this information is actually kept. I'm not really sure what the outcome of that is right now. But supposedly they've ensured data isn't being sold. Location data is not being sold, or at least the real-time version, even though those fines haven't been imposed yet, from what I can tell. But that complaint came from a sheriff in Missouri who was using a service called Securus, which was an entity that provided communications to the correctional facilities to actually access location data of customers without their permission. Ooh, that's a big no-no. Yeah. All this kind of, you know, information, this kind of, these kinds of practices that are what get the conspiracy theorists out there going because, you know... They don't want anybody having their information. We're talking Google is like basically one of the biggest, um, you know. That was a big thing, I think, on that sensor vault. I think that's why they've had to kind of change their policies on how it's stored and how they'll produce Mm -hmm. it when it's requested. Um, And one thing that they brought up, I was actually reading the FCC press release about it, was that. I think it was the FCC press release. It might have actually just been an article in response to the press release about it. But it was that your internet history is more accessible by other parties. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking about the fact that NSA had all of the stuff that Snowden blew the whistle yep. on. Absolutely. And that, you know, that information is being collected. And there's good for good reason. Not, I don't necessarily, if handled appropriately. I was, I was know, just going to say for good reason. <laughs> Maybe initially at, for good reason, yeah. <laughs> I think the idea behind it is good reason. Yeah. You know, to monitor threats that are coming in. I don't know how you would be able to monitor that otherwise. I have no idea. So there's, you know, there's an offset to both that. You want your privacy, but at the same time, you want your safety. Mm-hmm. So I don't know really how you, what the happy medium is there. Um, I don't either. I mean, that's been an age discussion some, since technology came to yeah. this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, but this is a real reason why you can't just go out and track somebody's phone through a website as a public consumer. Just, hey. My buddy over here that I've known for three days, I want to know where he's at. Right. You know, there's not anything out there, at least that I know of. I'm sure somebody out there has something that can do Probably. that. They're not supposed yeah. to. Providers aren't supposed to be selling that information. And it does, I think it would be helpful in some cases like this, where you have a 27-year-old who's missing. His family is extremely worried about him. Mm-hmm. Um if there was a way to be able to get some information, you know, to help look for things, just because in cases like adults, like what we talked about, sometimes there's a delay in action because of their right to make their own decisions. Yeah. 
But that doesn't help concerned families. No. At the same time, they also have the right to privacy. So there's your offset. Yeah, I was just going to say. And then you have the other, you know, the other extreme where actually it could cause problems if somebody who's, you know, not supposed to have access to that person, like in domestic violence, you know, then if they can track them, then that, you know, then that person's lost their protection. So that is very true. Yeah. If you have a loved one that isn't on your phone plan, where you don't have access to be able to call and say, hey, can you tell me who they last spoke to? Because we haven't heard from them in weeks. There's Life360 or some kind of location sharing data um, that you can do through your phones. You know, iPhone has a way that you can connect, um, share your location on your mm-hmm. iPhone. Um, Google Maps, you can share lo- your location through Google Maps. I think Snapchat has a feature, but it can be turned off. Life360 has it, and I think Life360 actually has an option. I think it's Life360. It's one of the apps has an option where you can, if you're going somewhere, like say you're going Christmas shopping or birthday shopping, you don't want your husband or your wife or your kids to know where you're going. (laughs) You can do this bubble thing where it'll like hold you in place for a certain length of time and your location data isn't shown to anybody else. Oh, interesting. Well, there you go. So there's still ways to keep your privacy while also giving people a peace of mind and being able to say, hey, we haven't heard from you in a little while, a couple weeks, a couple days, whatever the abnormal amount of time is, Yeah, you know, give them a little bit of peace of mind. Well, you you know, the other thing is, is, um, you know, not every, not everybody will want to do this, but, you know, it, as this kind of technology and this kind of tracking and all of this is coming along from, you know, even just a few years ago, um, you know, families and, you know, people who are close to each other that would normally not care if the other person or their family knew they should be having those kinds of discussions so that, you know, yeah, you don't want your neighbor knowing where you're going all the time, but you might want your family to know in case there's an emergency, you know. One thing I always tell um, people that I talk to, even if friends, family members, whoever, at least one person should know where you are. Yeah. Things are so crazy. It, it's a whole different world. Especially for teenagers that are just driving or young adults, you know, it really doesn't hurt to have somebody that can keep notice on you. The next case that we have a little bit of an update on is Joseph Johnson. After episode nine aired, we were contacted by a couple of people who wished to remain anonymous. According to those sources, the friend that Joseph was riding with that night was a guy named Tim, and we're still not quite sure who the female was, so that's still just an unknown female passenger who was allegedly Tim's, air quotes, girlfriend. Um, I say Tim, air quotes, because we don't know that for sure, that's just what we've been told. Um, so if Tim rings a bell to anybody, let us know. Based on the conversations that we had, we have reason to believe that there are more people than Tim and the unknown female passenger who have information about what happened to Joseph. It sounds like Joseph, Tim, and the unknown female potentially met up with another group of people at Rogers Lounge and then were headed back and that Maybe something occurred at that gas station. 
Right. Yeah. Beyond just the fight with the girlfriend and her being put out of the vehicle. Right. Um, it was interesting to kind of hear some of the stories and we're careful not to say anything that we can't verify. But if any mm-hmm. of this sounds familiar to somebody who has information and it kind of clicks and makes you think, oh, I do remember that. Or I was driving through there around that time. I know what you're talking about. Let us know. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, there's the off chance that maybe somebody might have been present at the scene, you know, that just happened to be there for whatever reason they had been driving by and stopped or to, you know, every every accident scene tends to have looky-loos. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Everybody gets curious. Um, so, you know, if you happen to be one of those people that actually went by when this occurred, but you saw the flashing lights, you wanted to know what was going on, any information you might have, like with people that may have been around other than the police officers or whatever, if you, even if you don't think it's relevant, you think it's just a neighbor or something, it might not have been. So, you know, those kinds of things that we always, you know, like we always say, you may not even realize that you know something when you know something that's very important. And if it was something where somebody passed through and everybody was, you know, standing out at the gas station or whatever, it does help narrow that timeline because right now I think there's a pretty broad window of when, whenever, of when whatever happened to Joseph happened. There's really, there's the time that he's assumed to have left and then the time that he's found But it would help narrow down that timeline if somebody said, oh, I came through at this time and everything was normal at, I don't know, 1 a.m. or 1.30 a.m. Because it does help narrow down the window. Right. Yeah. Not seeing something is almost as important as seeing something, so. We also don't have anything to update in Monica and Dalton's case, but there was another case that Captain Bonner told us about whenever we discussed Monica and Dalton's case with him. It was the case of 17-year-old Jerome Morris, who vanished from Heflin in 1991. Attempts to locate him whenever he vanished were unsuccessful. And in 2016, there was an interview that his sister Nicole Young did with ABC 3340, where she said that Jerome left their home with a lady in a red car saying that he was going to see their brother. But their brother never saw him and Jerome never came home. So in 1997, an individual surveying a site for construction of a home on County Road 533 discovered unburied remains in a wooded area on the property. Those remains were sent to DFS in hopes of obtaining DNA for identification but they came back inconclusive. So with no leads and no information, Jerome's case kind of just fell stagnant until about 2016 when Heflin Police Investigator Stacy Hendricks reopened the investigation. Investigator Hendricks stated that he felt there was someone who knew everything. There were comments, I think, that maybe people close to Jerome had noticed some things that weren't quite right, maybe seemed a little bit odd. Couldn't quite put their finger on it, but they think there is somebody out there that can put their finger on it, that knows 
what happened. Isn't that crazy? We hear that a lot in these, you know, we always know that the officers, you know, the investigators, they know more than what they say, obviously. Um, but it seems like we've been hearing that a lot when we've been researching these, that um, it, it's almost as if they do have somebody in mind. And when they say those kinds of things where, you know, they have, they must have enough information about some sort of aspect of the case that they believe that, you know, that will happen. I mean, everybody knows, somebody knows, but yeah. the way that they phrase it, it sounds like they know more than what they say, I guess, when like, they say it. Like there's a witness, maybe uninvolved witness, mm-hmm. you know, not saying yeah. that they had anything to do with it, but there's somebody they have in mind that mm-hmm. was around or they knew or somehow, I mean, it could even so much be, it could be somebody that was maybe a victim in a different sense of whoever the perpetrator is. Um, and maybe they're having trouble making contact with them. So they don't want to necessarily put out information. Maybe they just have information because that's one thing yeah. that you hear too, not necessarily in this case, but in other cases, is that they know that there's other victims out there depending on what's going on and they just haven't been able to get them to be willing to talk to them so Mm -hmm. i'm with you that it's a comment that's been made a couple of times where you feel like okay they know who they're talking to Mm -hmm. yeah um and it's not always a bad thing so if you think they're talking to you talk back to them (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) Um, don't wait yeah. yeah Captain Bonner eventually joined the team that was working on the investigation, and he requested that the 1997 remains be sent to a lab at Lakehead University in Canada for new analysis. I think it was probably somewhat of a shock when those results came back and confirmed the remains to be Jerome Morris. Crazy and wonderful and, you know, kind of bewildering all at once. (laughs) They'd just been sitting there the whole time, and nobody knew. That they were yeah. drawn. And I think probably some of that is a testament to the fact that the testing and analysis and everything has come so far in 20 years. Right. Um, we see so much of that being announced almost every day. Well, yeah, I'll, I would say every day probably now that there's some, someone has been identified. It's a good motivation for rerunning your DNA analysis. If you have an old case that hasn't been solved, or if you've got an unidentified body that you weren't able to identify back years ago, not even necessarily 20 years ago. Right, yeah. Rerunning it can be helpful. Yeah, agreed. I think any time that there was an advance in technology, DNA testing and ways to gather evidence and ways of preserving evidence and all of those things, you know, those are all coming so far now that, you know, even five years ago, there could have been something that wasn't available to them now. Well, it reminds me of one of the events that Uncovered had where Detective Dolls did the presentation. And he Mm -hmm. talked about the fact that handprints, like your full handprint wasn't always stored. Like whenever um, they had inmates come in or whatever for booking or anything that had to have your fingerprints taken, I guess. Yep. I'm assuming, right. I think I think what he referred to were, were inmates that were being booked. 
they took their fingerprints, but now they take their handprint. Mm-hmm. And that before, maybe, I want, I can't remember now, but it seems like the case that he talked about was a case that they had um, a handprint in, but the fingerprints were smudged, or maybe they weren't all on there, but they had a really good palm print. But it didn't really help them at the time because there wasn't a record of palm prints. And now like that helped them to get that case solved because now there are handprints stored. Yeah. So they just yep. checked it again, and there it was. So, you know, that's another thing. Sometimes it's just that things like that, fingerprints versus handprints, um, or that maybe whoever's fingerprints you have weren't in the system to begin with. Yeah. And now they are. Um, yeah, you know, they may not have committed another crime back then, but now they have or, you know. Yeah. They it's, apply for a government job, maybe. <laughs> so it's always good to, you know, update those things on occasion. Probably like on a, it doesn't have to be obviously monthly, but on a regular basis for unsolved cases. Hmm. You know, we're talking to you, Alabama legislature. Come on, guys. <laughs> I know. Georgia just passed the Coleman Baker Act. Yep. Um, so with the remains being confirmed to be those of Jerome, that kind of locked a puzzle piece in place. And investigators feel pretty certain they know who is responsible for Jerome's murder and why. Um, that was something that I actually found in an interview that said they have a pretty good idea of who is responsible. But they still need some information. Obviously, Jerome disappeared in 91. The remains were found in 97. They weren't identified until 2016. That's a lot of time that's passed. Right. Yep. They need some people, whoever it is that they're talking to, we're talking to you too, um, to come talk to them. You know, if you've got information, please contact Heflin PD at 256-463-2292. Or you can email Captain Bonner at sbonner, B-O-N-N-E-R, at cityofheflin.org. We will also put his email in the description. It's in the episode details for Monica and Dalton's um, case as well. And again, if you have any information on Monica and Dalton's case, you can also contact Captain Bonner. Um, Just get it in somehow. You know, just get the information in. We talk about that all the time. Just get it to somebody that can get it to the right place. Absolutely. You know, we don't have any more updates um, on any of our past episodes right at the moment. Um, Hopefully we will soon have more updates. Um, We're fortunate, even though we wish we had more, that we had what we had today for you guys. But, um, you know, the biggest thing is, is what we got was from people like you guys. And so we really, really appreciate when you guys listen in and, you know, say, hey, I remember something about that, or I know somebody who talked to me about that. Just don't hold it in. Please call, email, you know, message, whatever it takes to get that information to somebody. Um, don't don't let these cases go unsolved. We want to stick by our no more cold cases hashtag. And speaking of cases that need information, we've got one more for you. On Saturday, April 8th, 2023, Baldwin County Sheriff's Office was called to a property near Sawmill Road in Seminole. 
a turkey hunter was leaving his hunting property and discovered a body on his property. Um, when the Baldwin County Sheriff's Office arrived, they found a Caucasian or Hispanic male, they're not sure, in a purple paisley long sleeve button-up shirt based on the pictures, um, which we'll put up on the website. But you can also find, also find them on um WKRG, the news stations, and also Baldwin County Sheriff's Office Facebook, I believe. Um, black joggers and black and one slides. Fox 10 and WKRG reported that investigators believe the body may have been there for a week to two weeks, but unfortunately, the medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death. They do believe that foul play was involved, kind of just based on the fact that they couldn't make a determination and the location of where the body was. I think it was kind of off off the road in the woods to where probably anybody that was just driving by wouldn't have seen. Obviously, nobody would have seen it because it took the man leaving his property to see it. Um, there weren't any tattoos reported. It was reported that an earring was found, but it wasn't exactly clear whether it was just maybe a random earring somewhere in the scene or if it was an earring they believed to belong to the man. But they need some help getting the body identified. So I think they were a little bit shorter in stature. I don't know an exact height. I don't know that that's been released yet. But if you can look at the clothing that's described, um, if you know of somebody that's missing from the area or went missing within the last two to three weeks, Contact Baldwin County Sheriff's Office and maybe help them get this body identified. This is somebody's son. Um, you know, he may have kids. He may have a wife, brothers, siblings. This is somebody's loved one. Any information that you can get in to help them identify the body would be fantastic. And you can reach Baldwin County Sheriff's Office at 251 Nine three seven zero two zero two, and I believe they also have um, an anonymous tip um, submission set up on their website. So if we can get that linked into the details, we will, so that you can send in information that way as well. Hey there, guys. When we were finished recording, there was some news that came out of Dadeville, Alabama, that we thought was important to talk about. I'm going to turn this over to Sellers to give you an overview and what we know at this point. We didn't want to end the episode without discussing what occurred on Saturday, April 15th, 2023 in Dadeville. Around 10.34 p.m., multiple people entered Mahogany Masterpiece and opened fire on a large group of people celebrating Alexis Dowdle's Sweet 16 birthday. It was almost 11 hours later that authorities made their first official announcement. Through the first two press conferences from authorities, both held on Sunday, April 16th, we learned that the shooting had been tied to a birthday party being held in the 200 block of North Broadnax Street and resulted in the loss of four young wives and 28 injuries. By Monday, April 17th, the number of those injured had risen to 32. The information provided in the updates were minimal. The event was tied to a birthday party. Four lives were lost. Numerous injuries. It was a fluid situation and a thorough investigation was being conducted. And there was a $5,000 reward offered by Crime Stoppers for any information. There was no identification of any of the victims. No discussion of how many people in total were at the party, whose party, 
whether there were person or persons of interest or any possible motive. The lack of information provided put the community on edge. Were they in danger? Was the person or persons responsible still at large? Did they have any idea who was responsible? On Monday, April 17th, the Tallapoosa County Coroner released the names of those who had been killed, Philstavius Dowdle, Sean Kivia Smith, Marcia Collins, and Corbin Holston. 18-year-old Philstavius Dowdle was from Camp Hill and a senior at Dadeville High School. He'd recently committed to play football at Jackson State University. He was a multi-sport athlete, participating in football, basketball, and track. Just the Friday before, he'd participated in a track event held in Troy and placed first in the 100-yard dash and second in the 200-yard dash. He was at the birthday party because Alexis is his sister. What should have been a happy day celebrating a milestone birthday ended with Alexis holding her brother and pleading for him to just hold on. In an interview with local media, Alexis stated that when the gunfire erupted and everyone started running, she felt someone push her in the back only to turn around and find her brother trying to get her out the door. Phil was a promising young athlete with a bright future. He was characterized as humble and a kind person always wearing a smile. 17-year-old Sean Kivia Smith from Dadeville was also a senior at Dadeville High School. Amy Jackson, a relative of Sean Kivia, called her a ray of sunshine. People actually called her Kiki, which I kind of love. Sean Kivio was the manager of the Dadeville High School basketball team and track and field teams, and she had played volleyball and softball until she tore her ACL her junior year. Dadeville's track coach said Sean Kivia had even traveled to Troy just to be there in support of the team. He said she was always smiling and kind of getting on to everybody, trying to keep everybody in line. It's become so much more common to have this happen in, with younger people, but this seems like such a I mean, sometimes you can kind of predict what or understand what happened, even if it's still hardly understandable. But in this situation, it just feels like, you know, this is a sweet 16 party. And, you know, this these kids had everything ahead of them, you know. And the fact that it was a sweet 16 party means that probably the majority of the people that were there were also teenagers. And that's just kind of hard to wrap your mind around. 19-year-old Marcia Collins graduated from Opelika City Schools and had recently committed to play football at LSU. Marcia, also known as Sai, had taken a gap year between high school and college to pursue his dream of being a singer. Sai's father, Martin Collins, former Marine and graduate from Samford, is pursuing a law degree at LSU and was looking forward to his son joining him in the fall. His father told AL.com that Sai was a funny, charismatic kid who lit up the room. 23-year-old Corbin Holston was from Dadeville and graduated from Dadeville High in 2018. According to an AL.com interview given by his family, he had not originally planned to go to the party, but received a message from at least one younger relative who was at the party saying they had a serious concern. His family said that he was only at the party to ensure that his relatives were okay and that he'd not been there for very long before the shooting began. They described him as a selfless individual who loved his family, and probably because of that, he was able to pull his younger relative to safety before he was killed. Which is horrible that you've got this message coming in telling you that they think something bad's about to happen, only for you to get there in time, but not be able to stop it. 
And they were saying that, you know, they had some warning. And they, they even stopped the party at one point, correct? They did. So the first time we heard about that was one of the local media stations actually did an interview with the DJ that was there. And he said there were about 40 to 50 people, I think, at the birthday party. And that somebody did show up with a gun and that the mother actually stopped the party, asked the person to leave. But he says nobody left and the party just kind of resumed. Um, He said that whenever the shooting started, he actually... The people that were closest to him, he tried to help get them under his DJ table to kind of block right. them from anything. Yeah. And I don't know if they even knew who had the gun, did they? I think they just heard that somebody had a gun. I haven't seen anything, any statements identifying who had the gun. Um, yeah. I mean, I, just I guess they would know that they by knew now. Somebody then. did. Um, somebody knows who had the gun. Because they had to tell Alexis and Phil's mom so that she could stop the party. So yeah. somebody knew whether or not they told anybody else who had the gun. Um, you know, they they stopped and told them to leave. And maybe they thought they did leave. Yeah, I don't know. That's You know, that's something that we don't... There's not a whole lot of information. Even when they did the third update yesterday... All that they actually said about what they know to date is that there was no high-power ammo, but they did find numerous shell casings from handguns, um, and that they were still kind of sorting through all of the evidence that they had to try to figure out who was actually at the party, um, potential suspects, and a motive. So, at least according to Aaliyah, that's... Stuff's still kind of up in the air. And I imagine with a party that big, you know, it probably is a lot to have to kind of sort through to confirm who was in attendance. It's not like there's some roster you come in and sign to say, hey, I'm here. And if you listen to the YouTube videos, it sounds like basically what you would expect. It was mass chaos. People were trying to get out as fast as they could. They were trying to get to safety. So it probably has been a little bit harder to track down who was there because they were supposed to be there and who was there even though they weren't supposed to be there. Exactly. Yeah. They did say in their um in their updates that the public wasn't in any danger. I'm not really sure what to take from that. Um since there's really been no mention that they have potential suspects. Right. So they've been very careful to say they have a reward or they need information about the shooting, not about the shooters, not about where they might be. And so I kind of feel like it has to be somebody that was either injured or killed, but I don't want to speculate on that. So without knowing. There may be more information I'm not going to say there may be. Obviously, there's more information that they have. But when I was kind of flipping through social media, looking at things that were being said, there's actually a photo that's floating around out there. And I think it's terrible that it's floating around out there. Because it, I don't know when that actually was published, but if that was before any of the families actually were notified, that's a terrible way to find out. And I think sometimes people don't really think about that. Mm -hmm. 
whenever they're circulating very graphic photos. Um, but there's been some speculation in the photo that maybe there was more than four people that have passed away. And there are rumors that are out there, and they are strictly rumors. Aaliyah has not confirmed anything, that there were four people or four suspects and that one of them was found deceased at the scene, a fifth one. Um, now, I don't really know what how you, you know, put that together with what you currently know. Um, but it would make sense if there may if that's part of the reason why they're not releasing some of the information. Um to be fair, I don't really know how the injuries went from twenty eight to thirty two. Um Yeah. I from Saturday either. night to Monday. That's kind of strange to me. Because Yeah, I'm wondering if there was like a miscount of the attendees or something. I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody went to the hospital delayed and um, I think there was some issues. There was some inclement weather is what I saw from one of the hospitals. And I think there was some issues maybe trying to get people transported to other medical facilities that could or that were more equipped to handle what was going on. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe maybe that accounting comes from the fact that they're still they're still trying to pin down who all was actually there. So as they're getting names, they're kind of confirming, you know, whether they received treatment, you know, did they, were they able to go home, things like that. Um, but you would assume that since they've said the public is no longer in danger, they have some idea. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I noticed something interesting. One of the news articles that had posted about um, the reward said that Crime Stoppers was offering a reward for the for any information leading to the identification and arrest of the suspects. And I thought that was strange wording that it said suspects. I was like, what suspects? When did they say there were Mm. suspects? And so I went back to the press release that that was first referenced in, and there is no mention of suspects. Um, And so I go to the Crime Stoppers page and something that I noticed, and it could just be wording, but something that I thought was interesting was that, it looks like they use that wording when there's some kind there's something already out there to whether there's footage like surveillance footage still images um a description of a vehicle something you know that gives people or gives investigators an idea of what the person may have looked like or what they may have been driving but they still need the information to actually get that name and it's something mm-hmm. that people will be able to give them versus some unknown perpetrator where there's not any information. In those instances, it looks like they say information or identification leading to the person responsible. So I thought that was interesting wording. And it may just be in, you know, the haste of the moment trying to get everything out. That's just how Mm -hmm. they wrote it. But I would like to think that investigators do have a good idea of who did it. And I really because it's kind of hard to tell the community you're not in danger if you don't know who did it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So I feel like they they have a good idea, but it's one of those things where with an event this 
terrible and this traumatic, you really can't just go throw out names. No. You've got to be really sure when you get ready to say that, that you're right. Yeah, it's pretty irresponsible to name anybody without knowing. So I I get, I understand why they're not saying anything about that. But at the same time, you could at least say we have potential suspects. Yeah. Because then that third update sounded like they didn't have any suspects. Yeah. And maybe they don't want anybody. Maybe they do have suspects, but they don't want the suspects to know they're on to them. Uh, could be. I mean, that's I mean, just speculation. Who knows? I mean, most of... You know, I was just going to say, we could assume that, um, you know, either one of the extra four that were added on or even one of the original um, uh, injuries, you know, they don't want... I mean, they're, they're still there. They're still alive, but they're in the hospital. So that would more than likely kind of put them in a less dangerous position, I guess. What I, what I would say is, you know, they aren't out roaming around. They're in the hospital, if that's if that's the case. I've seen some comments um, from people saying that the rumor, again, is that mm-hmm. this was a potential dispute between neighboring cities. I'm not really sure what the dispute would have been or anything like that. But if that's the case, if there is some rivalry between neighboring communities that has escalated to the point where now you have four people who have lost their lives and an increasing number of injuries, some of which are still critical from what I understand, Um, which we're going to hope and pray that all of those that have been injured, you know, heal and recover wonderfully. But there's got to be some concern there that there may be some potential retaliation. So that could be another thing. If that's what the rumor is, and that's actually, if there's truth to that rumor, then maybe there is some concern that there would be um, potential retaliation if, they didn't get it under control first, you know, and that may be why they're not yeah, putting out the, any information on who they think is responsible. It almost has, and I'm not saying it is, but it almost has a gang-like overtone to it. I've seen that in comments being stated. As far as I know, there's not been any kind of confirmation and there's been no word from officials that it was gang-related. So that could, again, that could just be rumor mill stuff. You know, basically, literally, it all all that's known, at least as of April 18th, is that someone or someones came into a private venue where they were having a celebration of, celebration of life and then stole four lives and injured at least 32 others. And that it happened around 1034 on or in the 200 block of Broadnax Street at Mahogany Masterpiece, which I saw today has now removed its sign. And that's terrible because now that's somebody's livelihood. 
that there's a reward for information, that it doesn't appear high-powered guns were used because they didn't find any ammo there that would indicate that. And that's basically it. One thing that I did like is that the Tallapoosa County Superintendent said they would be having um, Raymond Porter, the Tallapoosa County Superintendent Raymond Porter, said they would be offering counseling services to students. And I think that that is so important, especially for the next little while, because this is going to be something that is hurt, that hurts. And pe- kids need somewhere that's a safe place for them to be able to talk about that. So I think it's great that they're going to have those support services out there. And he even made a comment about that they were urging members of the clergy to also offer support services to the families that have been affected. And again, I think that is a wonderful move because my heart just goes out to them. This is, this is tough. It is. It's heartbreaking. I think it's very common now that um, they offer these services. I think they've had to learn the hard way about this because there's just been so many of them lately. Um, I mean, it just seems to increase year by year. But it, I agree, it's very important to have those services available because they're more qualified than your parent, your friend, your, you know, whoever that's, you know, not um, educated in these kinds of incidents. And, you know, children are, you know, they have younger brains, they have younger minds, and they can be very emotional, they can be very angry. Um, So, you know, those kinds of support services are just, you know, they're critical. In a press conference held April 19th, Aaliyah announced the arrest of two individuals in connection with the shooting in Dadeville this past weekend. Tyreek McCullough, a 17-year-old from Tuskegee, and Travis McCullough, a 16-year-old from Tuskegee, were both formally charged with four counts of reckless murder. Authorities stated the investigation is ongoing and that more charges may be forthcoming, and they are still urging anyone with information to come forward. Aaliyah is asking if you have any information that you please send that in. You can contact their confidential tip line at 800-392-8011, or you can send an email to sbi.investigations at aaliyah.gov. That's A-L-E-A dot gov. You can also contact Central Alabama Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867. You can submit anonymous tips on their website, too, on the 215stop.com website. We'll link that in the episode details. And I believe you can also submit tips online through the Aaliyah website. So we'll link that as well. But our hearts go out to the families in the Dadeville community in the Tallapoosa County, especially those family members of the four young men and women that lost their lives. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. 
We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are Unforgotten also is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.